Well, do keep Matthew uh, 5 open in front of you as we look at that passage. Father killed for confronting teenagers who were damaging his car. Young man killed for challenging a man who had thrown a half-eaten Mars bar through the open window of his car whilst at traffic lights. Marriage redefined in our nation. Abortion clinics allowed to advertise. There is in our land, sadly, a diminishing respect for human life. There is growing dishonesty, corruption, immorality. There's increasing violence and pornography. There's increasingly an abandonment of the gospel. People not wanting anything to do with the church. It's as if a moral rot has set in and there is a darkness across our nation. And the question is, where is the impact of Christians in our nation? Where is the impact of Christians in our nation? I mean, Jesus calls us, that is those who have repented and turned to him, to be salt and light of this earth. Salt prevents decay and it promotes good, while light exposes danger and reveals the way. And the implication, therefore, of what Jesus says is that, look, this world is rotten and dark and it needs the effect of Christians. It needs the effect of Christians more than ever as we drift further and further as a nation to a secular state. Britain needs Christians to be salt and light now. And in the verses just before ours, Jesus has been teaching his portrait of his people in Matthew 5, 1 through to 12. In other words, he's been describing what his disciples are to be. And he now moves to teach them how they are to be in the world. And he does not suggest, he does not hint at what they might like to be. No, he makes two statements. You are salt of the earth, and you are light of the world. This is, as it were, basic GCSE Christianity. This is what we are. So the first thing, as salt, we are salt, we're to be distinct, stopping rot, and promoting good, verse 13. As salt, we're to be distinct, stopping rot, and promoting good. I I clicked on too far, there we go. Salt was uh, used for loads of things back in the ancient times. We were hearing a little bit this morning. It was used for seasoning. It was used as an antiseptic. It was used as a fertilizer. It was used as a food preservative. It was used as a sprinkling in sacrifices. So how do we know what Jesus was referring to when he uses it and describes us as salt of the earth? Well, rather than guessing, it's better to ask whether Jesus uses this same image elsewhere. In other words, let one part of the Bible shed light on the meaning of another. And Jesus does use it elsewhere. He uses it in Luke chapter 14 and verse 34. And Jesus says this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure part, i.e. as a fertilizer. It's thrown out. And that's pretty close to Matthew 5.13, and it seems to be the best indicator of what Jesus has in mind in our verse when he speaks of us as salt. In other words, Christians are to be a 
fertilizer in society. Now, you probably never thought of yourself as fertilizer or as a manure pile. It's okay. It's just an allergy. You don't need to worry about it too much. And Jesus says it, so get over it. <laughs> and fertilizer has two purposes, which are effectively two sides of the same coin. It, fertilizer, firstly, it stops the rot in the soil, and at the same time, promotes good in the soil. Where we used to live, the, the soil at the back was pretty rotten. It was useless, but I didn't quite know that at the time, so I began to try and grow some vegetables. It was early on in our marriage. I was trying to impress my wife with my gardening skills. And uh, every year, we seemed to do okay, uh, and other years, nothing. And the reason was not just my poor gardening, but that the soil was useless. It was rotten. It had limited goodness in it. And over time, the soil just continued to rot and become increasingly useless as all the goodness was taken out, I discovered, by the four large pine trees at the back of the garden. Now, had I added fertilizer, what would have happened? Well, it would have stopped the rot. It wouldn't have got any worse. But more than that, it would have actively worked to promote the growth of what was good in otherwise rotten soil. It's this idea that Jesus has when he says, look, we're salt of the earth. Our very presence in the world should mean that we help to prevent further moral rot, but at the same time we're to promote good. It is not one without the other. It is both. It's the two sides of the same coin. But how do we do that? Well, for example, I heard recently of a teacher who used to actively think of topics of conversation to steer the staff room round to. So it didn't just swing around to gossip and sleaze. And he noticed that on his lunchtime playground duty, Tuesdays, one of the younger teachers always ate her sandwiches sitting out in the corridor. And he asked her why. And she said, look, it's the tone of the conversation. It makes such a difference when you're in there. That's saltiness, isn't it? It's thinking of conversations. He's actively preventing the rot... Conversation doesn't turn to, to gossip and sleaze, but at the same time, he's promoting the good. He's injecting, as it were, wholesome conversation into otherwise rotten soil. What about the Christian in the office, or at the workbench, or in the van, or at the cash till, who just does not bully those around them in order to get ahead, or to look better in front of the supervisor, whose dealings are done with integrity and honesty? who can be firm but is always gracious and loving. Saltiness prevents the rot because people who work with them and deal with them know that they won't stand for dishonesty and lack of integrity, but at the same time they're, they're raising the standard by which people do business and deal with them and they're promoting good. What about the mother at the school gate who actively stops the others from gossiping about a teacher or another parent or another child and instead turns the conversation to more serious things. It's saltiness, stopping the rot, and it's promoting the good. And it's not just in our individual spheres that we're called to do this. It will also mean speaking out against the evil that is around in our communities. So being school governors or on local business consortiums or on local community projects. We're seeking to oppose the anti-Christian decisions and behaviour. We're stopping the rot, and instead we're seeking to promote the good. We mean being more courageous, won't it? And outspoken against laws that oppose God's purposes and ways. 
you know, writing letters to MPs and councillors, opposing laws that are against biblical truth. The redefinition of marriage is a great one, isn't it? Well, it's not a great one, but it's an obvious example. Supporting organisations like the Christian Institute that seek to lobby government on our behalf and give us the tools to be able to write wisely to our MPs. You see, we need to be, as it were, organised fertiliser, acting together for the good of our society because often standards slip and they'll slide in a community for want of a clear Christian protest, for want of those who stand up and oppose wrong. Now, let us be frank. A lot of what I've just said could be done by a good moral pagan. There are many who are changing conversation because they don't like gossip or dirty talk. There are good moral businessmen and employees who work within honesty and integrity. Even writing to MPs is not a Christian thing. And yet as Christians, we're called to do these things more than others. We're called to take the lead. But it's also more than that. See, if we want to have a real impact on our society, if we, if we want to see Christ glorified, honoured by others, then we'll need to be distinct. We need to be distinct in every area of our lives. You see, salt is distinct. You can taste it immediately, can't you? The moment you put it on your chips, you know it's there. And we're to be distinct from the world around us. There to know we're there that we stand out, that we're different by the things we say, by the way we behave, by the things that we laugh at, by our priorities. And the reason we're to be distinct is not because we want to be moralists, not because we want to be Pharisees or to be seen as good religious people or goody two-shoes. No, we want to be distinct because Jesus is the most distinctive person. And we're his disciples. And we're to follow his example. Because we want the world to see him. Because he's the one who will ultimately stop the rot and promote the good. And it's the gospel that will ultimately have the greatest impact on our society. But for those around us, they, they need to see Jesus' distinctiveness in us. That's what will make us different from the good moral pagan. The problem is, we often don't like to stand out to be distinctive. In preparing, I came across a book by Ron Sider. It's a few years old now, but it's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And its subtitle is this. Why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? And in it, he quotes numerous surveys which show how divorce rates and sexual immorality is the same in the church as it is in the world. So according to one poll, 25% of evangelicals, and he defines evangelicals as a Bible-believing Christian, so people like you and me, and he says 25% of evangelicals, just like 25% of the population, have gone through divorce. He says 33% of all adults have lived with a member of the opposite sex without marriage. The rate is 25% within the church. Evangelical youth are only about 10% less likely to engage in premarital sex than non-evangelicals. Michael Horton, a leading evangelical theologian, writes, evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. That is a shocking thing to say. And of course, these figures are based on the US, but it's often easier first to see it in others before we see it in ourselves. 
And I doubt the figures would be much different in our country. And Jesus says that salt that has lost its saltiness is useless. Have a look at verse 13. It's to be thrown out. How can it be made salty again, Jesus asks. Now, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question to highlight the uselessness of salt that has lost its saltiness, for technically salt cannot lose its saltiness. It's chemically impossible. But it can become so adulterated, so contaminated with sand, say, that it becomes good for nothing. Such that it can no longer prevent rot nor promote good because it's so watered down. And all it becomes good for is hate to be thrown out and trampled upon. And Jesus says that's exactly how useful a Christian who is indistinctive, who has allowed themselves to be adulterated or contaminated by the world. So much so that the world effectively tramples on them because they are so much part of the world, they have nothing useful to say. It's awful, isn't it, when colleagues or neighbours or friends turn and say, what, you're a Christian? (laughs) I'd have never guessed it. And yet often we're proud by such a comment. Because we think, oh good, it must mean I'm normal now. I can witness. But of course the truth is it must mean that you're so like them that they didn't notice the difference. Maybe you're a bit more morally better than them. But you weren't distinctive, you weren't salty enough. Because just a grain of salt on your tongue is noticeable. Salt bites. Jesus didn't call us to be honey to the world. He called us to be salt. And being different is hard. Speaking against evil and condemning it will bite. It will cause offense. It will mean that some avoid us. Now that's not to say that we act in a way or speak in an unloving or ungracious way. Our manner should not bite. But the truth will bite will be persecuted for being distinct. To think you won't is to state that Jesus is a liar. Look at the verse just preceding our passage, verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's striking, isn't it, that this... It's these verses that precede Jesus' teaching on being a Christian in the world. On being salt and light in a world that is rotten and dark. Surely the point is that we will therefore be persecuted as we seek to be distinct. As we seek to speak out against the evil in our society. John Stott wrote over 30 years ago. When society goes bad. We Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and express disapproval at the non-Christian world. But should we not express disapproval at ourselves? One can hardly blame unfertilized soil for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? That's the question that needs answering as we look 30 years on. As we see increase in crime and abortion and divorce and poverty and murder uh, as we see an increase in people leaving churches and rejecting the gospel. Surely the question is not what is the government doing, but where is the salt? Where are the ones who are promoting, stopping the rot and promoting the good? And the answer is all too often stuck in the church salt pot. All too often scared of what colleagues and friends and neighbours will think rather than concerned for stopping the rot and promoting the good and being distinctive. 
And yet Jesus says, look, you're the salt of the earth. But not only are we to be salty, we're also called to be light. And you can't be one without the other. It's not an either or. We're called to be salt and we're called to be light. Because light, as light were to shine, exposing danger and revealing the way, verses 14 to 16. As light were to shine, exposing danger and revealing the way. See, the fact that uh, Jesus calls us to be light suggests that the world is darkness. We, as lights of the world, effectively act like lighthouses. We're to expose the danger and show the way. We probably all watch those films where someone is kind of fumbling and stumbling around a dark house while a storm kind of rages outside and the music is slightly creepy and it puts you all on edge and you know something is about to happen but you don't quite know what and the music builds as the tension grows as a person slowly climbs the stairs suddenly there's a large clap of thunder, a flash of lightning and it reveals that one more step would have caused them to plummet to their death. The light exposed the danger and it shows the way. And Jesus, as the light of the world, came to expose the danger and show the way for us, didn't he? Firstly, he reveals that we're in darkness. His very presence and deeds contrast with ours, exposing that we're not, in fact, living in light, but in darkness. His light provides the contrast that we need to see that we're in darkness. A few summers ago, we went to Longleat Safari Park. One of the many creatures we saw were cavefish. It wasn't the most exciting animal we saw, but it was fairly good. Now, the unique thing about cavefish is that although they're born with eyes, over time they become blind because they have no need of eyes, because they live in darkness, pitch black. Now, if you were able to ask them, it's a hard thing to do, but if you were able to ask them, what is darkness prior to going blind, they'd have no idea what you're on about. All they know is darkness. But if you shone a powerful light, if you brought them into the sun, well, then they'd be able to see, wouldn't they? Then they'd be able to notice the contrast, that of darkness and light, that they were in darkness, and what they now see is light. And Jesus, as light of the world, exposes the darkness we live in through his teaching and his distinctiveness. Secondly, then, he exposes our danger. He reveals how, as those who live in darkness, we're living in opposition to God's ways, that which is in the light. In the Bible, light is symbolic of truth. So we, to live in darkness is to live outside of God's truth, outside of God's ways. And as such, we face his judgment. Jesus shows us the gap in the stairs, as it were. He reveals that, look, if you continue in darkness... You'll fall through the gap, you'll plummet to your death, you'll be separated from him for eternity, hell. But then thirdly, Jesus, as the light, shows us the way. He not only shows us the gap in the stairs, but then he shows us the way round it. He reveals how we can be restored to God, avoiding the judgment that we rightly deserved. That by trusting in him and his death and his resurrection, actually we can become those who praise our Father in heaven, verse 16. And as his disciples, he calls us to do the same. We're to be lights of the world. We're to expose the darkness. We're to show people they're living outside of God's truth, that they're not living as God intended. And as light contrasts with dark, our distinctive lives should contrast with theirs, that they may see the difference, that they may see our good deeds, that ours is a distinctive life. 
but they might see our love for our neighbours, our compassion, our concern for the poor and the needy. But just seeing our distinctive life will not be enough. See, we must also expose the danger of living in the darkness to them. We must preach the gospel to them. We must warn them of the danger of turning their backs on God, of rejecting him, of living without him. And that to do so will mean they'll face his judgment and eternity without him, hell. And then we're to show them the way to safety. We're to show them to the cross and to Jesus and that life is found in him. So that verse 16, they may praise his name. That's what light does. That's what we're called to do. But for us to be light, we must be there. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, verse 14. I used to live in London, and one of the things about living in London is that it is never dark. Because there's light everywhere. You, you can't hide it. What a foolish thing even to try and hide light. Who lights, verse 15, a lamp and then puts it under a bowl? No one. Because the reason you light a lamp is that you want everyone, verse 13, in the house to see. And yet as those who are lights of the world, often we hide ourselves away. A U.S. writer questioned why a nation that has the highest proportion of evangelical Christians has had so little impact on the society around. And his answer was because they're all in holy huddles. They're all in their churches. And isn't that often the case in the U.K.? Isn't, isn't that our danger? That we spend our time in our holy huddles all our time in church groups and house groups and youth groups and with church friends and, and all those things, of course, are good. But how are we being light to a darkened world? How many of us are in our communities? How many know more than just their immediate neighbours in their street? How many people do you know in the immediate surrounding houses or places around this church? So are we making time to get to know the world, the community that we're called to be light to? See, a local church is to be Christ's reflectors to the local people in order that to do all that we have to, and to do all that we've been called to do. You have to be there. We have to be there in order for them to see our good deeds, to be able to expose danger and show the way. So you have to be at the school gate and you have to be in the local football club and the social clubs and maybe some of us just need a six-month plan to unpick too many church commitments and get out from under the bowl. So actually we can give more light to our neighbours or family or whoever. We need to be there to be light. Because being sold and being light is not an optional lecture. It's what we are as disciples of Jesus. See, if you want to make an impact on our society and in our communities and in our country and here in Linfield, and you need to be salt and light. You need to be distinct and you need to be there. Because that's what we're called to be. It's not either or, it's both. We're called to be both salt and light. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you do not leave us in darkness but that you sent the Lord Jesus as light to the world, revealing our darkness, revealing our need of you, 
And Father, we pray as disciples of his, we too would want to be light to a darkened world. Please, Lord, help us also to be salt. Help us to be distinctive. Help us to stop the rot and promote the good, we pray. Father, help us in these things, we ask. Pray that you would change us where we need to be changed in regard to these things. Father, prevent us and keep us from just the comfort of uh, being together, but seeing the need of your world, we pray, that we might have hearts that reflect yours for a lost world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.